Forever, Jesus. 
Was paid on that old rug. 
rugged cross. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy the redeemed will proclaim. Blessing and honor, glory and might forever. time began Like the diamond in a ring Love's tokens the redeemed Salvation has a reason Pulling praise from my trees And praise the sun the great I am as those slain the Lamb stands sin defeated death overcome when he rose my life he won like the diamond in a ring love's tokens the redeemed has a reason pulling praise from my trees praise the sun the great I am as though slain the lamb he stands sin defeated death overcome when he Our scripture reading this morning comes from, you could probably guess it, the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we are going to be reading verses 6 through 15 together. Give you a moment to get there, and we will remain standing together out of honor for God and His Word. Thank you. 
Second Thessalonians chapter three, starting in verse six. This is God's word to us this morning. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, not give, you, uh, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You may be seated. And in a moment, we are going to pray together. But right now, I actually want to invite up five special people, and that is our interns for the summer. So you guys can come up. This is Audrey Hole and Jasmine Sanchez and Skylar Draper and Hugo Menendez and Aiden Van Eck, along with Pastor Randy, who uh, was working with them for the summer as well. Can I just say, I know a lot of us have seen these five serving around the church this summer. They have been absolutely awesome. Just like so, so awesome and had just been such a blessing uh, to a lot of the families here working with children's ministry, working with outreach. And so to the U5, we're just so thankful for you. And it's been an awesome summer and we're so grateful for all of your service to the church. So uh, we are going to pray together now and we'll especially just pray for them as they move on from this season to uh, what God has next for them in their lives. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, and we are thankful that being justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with you. Thank you, Lord, that, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that all of our sins and all of our rebellion against you, and every time we have desired things that are dishonoring to you, all of that, if we are in Christ, was laid on him on the cross, and your wrath and judgment against our sin was poured out there so that we can know you without fear of judgment, and we can walk with you in this life and then in eternity be with you forever and ever and ever. Lord, we just we praise you for that. You've blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it's greater than we could ever know or understand, but we ask that you would continue to grant us a deeper understanding of that. Please open our eyes to see how great your love is for us in Christ, and we just pray that you would help us to know that more and more deeply and to experience it in our lives. Lord, we thank you this morning for these five. Thank you so much for Audrey and Jasmine and Skyler and Aiden and Hugo and for their service to the church uh, over the summer here. We just we pray that you would uh, bless them as they move on from being here with us at Grace into the school year and into everything that you have for them in their lives. We ask that you would continue to draw them towards yourself, keep them close to you and humble. Please uh continue to strengthen them to serve you in whatever areas you place them in. And Lord, we just thank you again uh, for their, their service to your people this summer. We ask that 
um, that they would continue in that service to you. And Lord, we thank you that along with them, there are so many at Grace who by your power are serving with the strength that you supply and are just are being a blessing and even storing up eternal rewards as well in serving you. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. We pray that for all of us, you would help us to think not of the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, which are eternal, and to devote our lives uh, to these things. Lord, we, we love you. We also, uh, this morning, even think of just um, Brittany and Simon and Tony as they're in Cambodia, as well as Kimberly Moore, who is in Ireland now, just different teams uh, over the summer serving you. We pray specifically for those groups in Cambodia and for Kimberly in Ireland right now. We pray your blessing on them, that while they're away, they would have a time of fruitful ministry and that they'd be a blessing to the churches where they are. And Lord, we, um, we just commend them to you and to your grace. We love you. Thank you that you hear us when we pray. And we pray that in all things this morning, Christ would receive glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
treasures of this world will never satisfy you alone are endless joy so I cling to Christ you alone are endless joy so I cling to Christ Lord let that be true of us this morning that we would put our hope and trust in you God that you would bring us rest this morning because of our confidence in Christ and his finished work on the cross his righteousness given to us we thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus name Amen Obedience is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. It includes first a surrender of your will to God and then active follow-through for God's glory. As we near the end of this brief letter, 2 Thessalonians, uh, we come into a stretch I'm calling the obedient church. Over the next three weeks, we will address things that are painful yet good. Today, keeping the command, verses 6 to 10, and then next week, correcting the unruly, verses 11 and 12, and after that, loving the family, verses 13 to 15. Today, we are addressing the always interesting dilemma of doing what God says, even when it is uncomfortable, even when it makes us feel bad or is tough to do. We're going to see today how obedience is the most God-pleasing and redeeming a decisive course of action for the church. Highlights not only the necessity for obedience, but also the cost of decay. Eleven years ago, I cracked a tooth. When the tooth got cracked, I had to get a root canal to save the tooth. Then they put a crown on top of it. And recently, that same tooth started hurting a lot. There were like three nights in a row I would be up at two in the morning with a lot of pain. And so I went to the dentist. I went to the dentist and they said, well, it's abscessed, it's infected, it it needs to come out. It needs to be taken out of your mouth. And I was in a lot of pain and the infection was spreading in my jaw. And what, what the deal was, was the tooth had to be separated from my body. That's what they did. They, they took it out. It was painful. But now, two and a half weeks later, praise God, healing. There's no pain. That place where the tooth was is filling in with whatever God has it filled in with. But in the context of the church, the cost of decay is also high. It is also infection, and I call it unlovely unsteadfastness. This whole series is on being steadfast in Christ, but when there is infection in the church, it's unlovely and it's not steadfast. Also, we know that something 
needs to be done when things are unhealthy or else the church won't be healthy. The idea is that we must keep the command of God even though it's painful, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's inconvenient. It's the best and most loving thing to do. And for any of you who might be wondering whether you're a part of Grace Church or, or new or just tuning in on the live stream, you go, wait, wait, is there like a big problem going on at Grace Church of Orange I don't know about? Is there an intervention about to happen? No, and you should be very thankful that I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and I don't get to pick and choose, you know, what kind of Bible bullets I'm going to shoot at you. It's not like, oh, there's some big problem, and I'm, I'm looking at you. If I make eye contact during my sermon, it's because I want to, and I want to be personal with you, and I want to, I'm not calling you out with my eyes. If the shoe fits, you got to wear it. If there's an issue in your life and, and you need to deal with it. But what we see in this passage is that the obedient church keeps the command of God. That's what we see. Keeps the command of God. The idea is the obedient church keeps the word even if it's painful. Why is it here? And, and I've, every time I read something like this in the Bible, I think to myself, I know why it's there. Because we need it. The people who originally got it and needed it, they would have been tempted to not do what the Word of God says. This obedient church. I think Grace Church of Orange is a rather obedient church, but we are all tempted to not do what the Word of God says, especially in what verse 6 says. They were going to be tempted to not do what the Word says and this is how it gets teed up. This is how the runway gets, gets developed. Paul had prayed for them. First five verses in this chapter. As the word speeds ahead rapidly, literally grows legs and runs really fast doing its work, that they would fall in step with it. He was confident that they would obey. The word would bear fruit just like it did when, when they first received it. And Paul speaks with this certainty as the Holy Spirit inspires him that they would love God and obey his word. And still they were going to be tempted to not do what the word of God says. Back in the first letter, in the first chapter, verse 8, Paul says, the word of God and your testimony of faith in Christ has literally sounded forth. It is rung out. It sounded out like a trumpet through you, and it's echoed like thunder. It's reverberating. God's word is doing the work, and he says, I'm confident that you're going to do what's right. Last week we saw it. He was praying even that Jesus would direct the way and he would demolish obstacles to his will and the church would be drenched with the love of God and that they would be depending on the steadfastness of Christ that sent him to the cross. But now he gets to some tough stuff. This is a family meeting. This is like an intervention. And he is addressing the sin of idleness in the lives of some believers and he is commanding the church to avoid them. Last thing any of us wants to do. Usually we don't do that. This is one of those inconvenient Bible verses, and we say, you know, it must not apply to us. He wants them to epitomize the healthy church, the obedient church that keeps the command of God 
no matter what the inconvenience, no matter what the pain, no matter what the, the desire of their hearts would be, it would be that the will of God must be done. First thing you see is that the command that was given was very clear. There's no, you know, there's no confusion. It's not cloudy. It's not like looking through your windshield when it's got dirt all over it and you can't see very well. Is that really what we are supposed to do? This is really clear. First thing I want you to see, the first point, the command was clear. And he speaks with apostolic authority. This is, this is Paul attacking a problem plaguing the church. Uh, put your eyes on verse 6. Here's how he starts. Now we command you. Now we command you, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother, any brother or sister in Christ, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. It's very clear. He says, we command you. He's not making suggestions. What he's saying carries the the full weight and authority of, of a judge's court order. It is from Jesus himself. The apostle delivered it, and it is to be enforced. Some of you are like, whoa, whoa. When I came to faith in Christ, I just heard it was all about comfort and forgiveness. What's this stuff about commands and obedience? We command you. It's not a suggestion. This is not take it or leave it. If you feel like it, do whatever you want. That's not what this is saying. It's saying you have to do it. If you want to please God, if you want to be the obedient church, if you want to be healthy, you have to do something uncomfortable. Key word in this passage occurs four times. In verse 4, in verse 6, we'll see it in verse 10, we'll see it in verse 12, command. The strong assertion, and it has a military tone to it, a military kind of ring. It's the idea of a general giving orders to his troops. It's a military command. It's, it's the idea where, and if you've been in the military, you know there's rank, and you don't, you don't fall out of rank. This is a demand that a subordinate obey an order from a superior, and it required unhesitating, unflinching, immediate obedience. Would you love if you got that from all your kids? Immediate obedience. All five of the share kids, perfect. Always a immediate obedience. No, seriously though, this is a mandate. This is, this is an authoritative command. This is a call to obedience from one in authority from Jesus through Paul. Paul's not the authority here. He's apostolic. He's the apostle. But Jesus is, is the authority. He says, I'm giving this to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is as authoritative as possible. You can't get around it. You can't go, oh, you know, this one doesn't apply to me. Calls them brothers. Brothers and sisters, brethren. This is what the family of God must do to make things right. And here's what he says to do. If, if it's in this situation where someone is walking in an unruly way, living in an unruly way, you're to keep away from them. We're all like, uh, well, does that mean that we can't hang out? Keep away. 
well, what, wait, does that mean that we, we can't just, you know, visit? Keep away. Well, hold on a minute. Are, are, are you sure that I'm supposed to keep away? See, here's the thing. This is so clear. This is not like, hey, by the way, I'm going to tell you right now, keep away doesn't mean keep away. <laughs> Let me explain it away. I can't. I can't explain it away. Keep away means keep away. And it literally, it literally means to withdraw from, hold yourself aloof from, not acting like you're superior from, uh, uh, over, but this brotherly, sisterly love where you say, I can't condone misdeeds. I don't want to condone my own. I can't condone yours. And I'm not going to deny in my choices what the church stands for. That the blood-bought bride of Christ, paid for by the, the precious blood of Christ, so I'm going to willy-nilly uh, get to decide what I obey or don't obey? Some of you are like, I don't want to hear this. Please hear it because it's from God. I didn't choose that on August 7th, 2022, I would be, you know, preaching this verse. But I'm not going to stand here and tell you, by the way, it doesn't mean what it says. Keep away. It's requiring a separation. Pain, painful. Do you think I would prefer to have my tooth back in my mouth? Absolutely. There's a gap there now. I got to make a decision. I'm going to put in, what should I, should I put something else there or leave it the way it is? You think that I really wanted to lose my tooth? The stinking thing was, uh, I guess stinking, it was uh, abscessed, it was infected, it was causing trouble. I loved my tooth. <laughs> I had had it for 59 years. <laughs> That's right. Well, not really. <laughs> it grew in, Is that what, was it always there? I, Paul is requiring a, a separation so that, so that humble, obedient believers would not be infected through contact with the habitually disobedient. That's an ouch of a sentence to even say. Can we just admit that all of us are like, well, wait, I don't know if I'm even obedient. Now, by the way, if, if you're the type that you, you, you came in and you saw the, the sermon title, and you're like, yeah, I got like five people I can think of that's in this category. You know, you look in the Bible, you look in the verse, and you're like, keep away from any brother. If you read the Bible, and you don't think first, Lord, is it me? Am I like this? Something's wrong with you. If you're proud, and you found out five, you've already thought of five people that match this, and you haven't once thought, is this me? Something's wrong. This is painful. This is not comfortable. This is not to be done haphazardly or even thought of haphazardly. This is to be done soberly and reverently and in the fear of Almighty God. But it means to withdraw. It literally means to flinch away from. It means to avoid. And he says, now, you do this with those who are walking... And some of you are like, oh, the one I'm thinking of is running, so it's okay. No, 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 walking means live. 
They're living their life. It's a metaphor of steady progress through life. They're doing this. They're not staying in the same place. They're not treading water. They're idle. They're unruly. They're out of order. They're, they're disorderly. They're living irresponsibly. They're lazy. It describes the behavior of, of those who were causing disorder in the church. Literally, that they were in defiance of a good order. They're saying, I am not going to obey that. It's like a soldier that says, I will not listen to my commanding officer. Failing to keep rank. Soldiers who will not obey orders. Evading responsibilities. Do you get the picture? And, and he's speaking of one's lifestyle, their daily conduct. It's not like this isolated, occasional lapse into laziness or, or misdeeds. It's this continual, it's in the present tense, unruly, disorderly, continual pattern of life that results in not working and meddling in the affairs of others, meddling in other people's business. By the way, the same group of people were also spreading gossip about people in the church. They had time on their hands. They had treachery on their lips. God forbid that any of us would have so much time on our hands that we would have treachery on our lips. Apparently, I mean, this is painful. Apparently, in the first letter, when he warned these idle busybodies to get to work, apparently they didn't repent. That some didn't repent. You know, in the Bible, sometimes people get called out. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. That's there forever. Here he's not naming names, but he's got someone in mind because next week we're going to see him talk directly to them. In verses 11 and 12, he's going to address those he's referring to. That should be good. But now he, he, he literally spends the last part of his second letter on this because this was so important. The, the body of Christ, Christ's beloved bride is important and the health of that body is very important. It's not just this group of you know, individuals that kind of blow in and blow out, but there's a committed group committed to Christ and, and the command is coming from Christ's authority because, because the strong temptation the inclination was going to be, can we ignore this one? Could it, might the abscess go away? Might it get better all on its own? Unless you think that Paul was, you know, jumping in conclusions all over the place and doing knee-jerk reactions, he goes through stages as he handles the problem. For example, if, if there's something that needs to be addressed, like, you probably shouldn't address it, like, right this second. Be careful about it. He goes through stages in handling the problem. First, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church in these verses. He's expressing confidence in them that they would obey. But, you know, back in verse 4, he said, look, I have confidence that you are doing and will do what we command. There's the word, command. And he prays that Jesus would direct the way and demolish the obstacles and that they would be drenched in the love of God, that they would be depending on the steadfastness of Christ. And he speaks to the obedient majority. And he says, now, don't be, don't be arrogant in any way. You've got to be humble, but keep away from the unruly. And then he speaks to those that might be in that category. 
And then he gives further instructions, and he's like careful. He's measuring his words, but he's zeroing in. He's not avoiding the issue, and he's doing what is necessary for the church. He's doing what is right. He's doing what is good. He's doing what God would be pleased with. And the most striking feature here is that he speaks with authority. There's this strong command to obey God. And that whoever he's speaking to in this context, he is using the, the, the language of command and obedience. This is not light. This is not fluffy. This is not, oh, it makes me feel so good. And he says, now, the people that, that I'm referring to are not living the pattern of their life in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now, it was very clear from previous verses, especially chapter 2, verse 15, this is, he's referring to the inspired teachings that were given. He's, he's referring to the word of God, that, that, that's the word that they had received, the, God's word. And he's saying these are people that are outside the bounds of Scripture. We must go to Matthew 18. Some of you are really familiar with this passage on church discipline. This is about church discipline. Long ago when I was preaching through Matthew and I came to Matthew 18 I, and this idea of what, what do you do if a brother in Christ or sister in Christ sins against you? What do you do? I call this church good stuff because it's good when you do what God says to do and, and it works out, but sometimes it doesn't work out the way you would hope. And, and, and so it's, it's explained in, in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't go gossip about him. Just go to them. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a, a Gentile and a tax collector. The idea is that treat them as, as an unbeliever that needs to be called to repentance and faith. In Romans 16, Romans chapter 16, near the end of that beautiful letter, in verse 17, he says, I, I appeal to you. Brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. But your obedience is known. You, you need to do what the word says. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and speaking of people who would be, in verse 2, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, un unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. It looks like they're godly, but denying its power, avoid such people. Paul told Timothy in his first letter to him that there was, there's this constant friction between people who are of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Now, 
This is really clear. Um, but you know what happens when expectations are unclear? Things get murky, things get muddy. I remember when the summer I graduated high school, I w had this one job, but I went and got this other job at a supermarket. And I still don't know to this day who was my boss and what I was supposed to do there. I'm serious. I think I was supposed to like bag groceries or put things on shelves, but no one ever told me, and I was too shy in the moment to actually ask, and I felt like I literally walked around, and so I just went back to my other job. It was too confusing. It wasn't clear. When expectations are unclear, things get murky, things get muddy, things get confusing. Here, it's very clear. It's like, are we clear? Crystal. Crystal clear clarity. This is like Lake Tahoe. By the way, I need to say something about the way Paul is speaking. He, he spoke with an apostle's authority. We can't speak like that. I must not speak like that. Some pastors try to speak like that. Now, I'm not going to go around and command you what to do. I'm going to point it out in the Bible and say, this is what you should do. There are no apostles today. The Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built on the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You, you, you build the foundation once. There's no apostles today. What we must do is speak the word of God and let it do the work, and we must obey it. The way that you submit to apostolic authority today is by doing what the word of God says. This command that was given was authoritative because it came from the Lord Jesus Christ and it was personal and it was practical and it was painful. And by the way, and, and I'm just going to say it again, everyone thinks it doesn't apply to them. I don't know, God knows, but I have to ask this question, am I that way in any way? We always think it applies to someone else who we think is worse than us. And that's the problem. We live in a time right now where everyone wants to redefine everything. You know how crazy that is? Redefine everything where there's no semblance of, of standard or order. And, and, and literally, if you, can, if you can redefine everything, anything goes. But here's what you can be confident of. When God speaks, he's not meaning 25 different things in the word. He speaks to us in the word and and. The, the command is clear. And when God specifies what we should do, it's, it's pretty clear. But there's this cost to rottenness and infection and abscess. And, you know, by the way, when I, when I, when I lost a tooth, when, I, when they, well, <laughs> didn't just fall out, okay? They had to get up in there and, you know, it hurt. <laughs> I said, hey, can I have that tooth? That's an expensive tooth. 11 years ago, it cost me a lot of money, and now it's costing me a lot of money. Can I have that tooth? It's worth something. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. And then someone runs in and goes, no, 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 you can't take the tooth. It, it's a biohazard. I'm like, uh, I understood. There was stuff on it. Let me just say, I don't mean to gross you out, but there, there was stuff on that tooth that wasn't tooth. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, you can come back in two weeks, and we'll give you the cleaned tooth. And take it through all the protocols and 
So I have the tooth now. I showed it to the staff at staff meeting. If you want to see it, I can bring it. It's in this like hermetically sealed, you know, biohazard bag, kind of like a a rare coin. It's worth more than your rare coin. Let me just put it that way. It costs me more than that. But a cleanup is not easy or painless. And when God's word specifies what we should do, the command is clear. We don't, we don't really have an option. But the interesting thing is, if you, when, you, when you go on through these verses in 7, 8, and 9, the, those verses, what's great about what comes with the command is that their example was godly. So Paul could say, you know, we didn't just tell you. We actually showed you with our life that we, we lived it. Look at verse 7. The, the example underlying or undergirding the command was godly. So in verse 7, he says, So you yourselves know how, how you ought to imitate us, like mimic us, follow our example. This is compelling necessity that they saw them live a certain way, and so they were going to need to obey and, and obey God with the word, but then Watch the example of of a godly brother in Christ. He says, you you yourselves know you should imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Like, we aren't like what needs to be dealt with. And he's not saying it proudly. He's just saying this is the way it was. You saw it. He said in verse 8, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Doesn't mean he never got a free meal. It meant that they, had, they worked hard. They, they worked, he says, worked night and day. So not to be a heavy burden on, on the church. So he said, we didn't take food without paying for it. We, and, and the idea here is that they made a living. They were toiling. They were working until they were weary. They were hardship in that working, but they worked energetically. They didn't want to be a burden on the church. And, and eat bread is an interesting Hebrewism. It just means eating food, okay? It's eating food. Uh, and he's not, again, saying that he never got a free meal or anyone gave him some hospitality. It's not that. What he's saying is, we refuse to impose on you for our livelihood. And, and here's what he did. In the first letter, he, he professed his motives. Now he's saying, here's our example. And, and in the providence of God, he could say, now, dealing with this issue in the church, look at our example. Look at it. You saw it, you know it. You can trust it because you can imitate us because why? What did Paul say? I imitate Christ. And he points out that the labor was hard and, 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 and it was for their, their best. He didn't take the valid opportunity he had to be supported by the church. Verse 9 says, it wasn't because I, we didn't have the right, the freedom to do that, but he waived his right in order to be an example. And, and you could really say that for this moment in time, that example was going to help the church, and it helps us. He's talking about an example. He's talking about a pattern that he had set down and laid down. I remember when I was a little kid, we would have like some kind of, I don't know, kind of craft time in, in, in school. Every once in a while, they'd give us some leather with these metal stamp things. They still do it, right? And you, and you like, you hit the stamp and it makes a stamp in the letter. You put your name or whatever you want. Well, this idea of an example, the, a type to imitate is a mark left by a blow. Like they could see it. It was obvious. 
It wasn't unclear. It's like stamping leather. You know, it was there. And, and what he's pointing to is, is their conduct, their life, their, their example to be followed. And he says, follow us. Follow us in this way. What model are you setting? Think about it. Are you, are you a godly model? Are you an ungodly model? Just ask the people that are nearby you. They'll tell you. We should give such a godly example that we don't pull the, ro- the rug out from under the, the, the work of the word, that, that opponents would have nothing bad to say, that we could say, you know, we're not perfect, but we're being preserved, we're being perfected. God is at work in us. Sometimes we don't attain to what we aspire to, and sometimes we, we think, wow, I've just ruined it, I've, I've blown it, and, and God knows the heart, and God knows what he's going to do. If you blow it, if you, if you know you ruined it or whatever you think, uh, confess your sins, uh, make it right, or, or just maybe it's not an outright sin, but you just you know you kind of let people down, or you know you didn't do the right thing. Do what is right. Don't keep going in the opposite direction. The command was clear. The example, godly. And here's the, the third point that gets pointed out in verse 10. The, the standard, the rule, was fair. He wasn't playing favorites, or he wasn't saying, you know, there's the people I don't like, so I'm going to put a standard on them that is heavier than on the ones I do like. The rule was fair, and what he's going to do now in verse 10 is repeat a previous order. Verse 10, he says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. There's the word again, command. If anyone is not willing to work, don't let him eat. Now, he's not advocating for starving to death. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He says, when we were with you, we used to give you this order. It's a command. It's, this is the key word in this section. It's not a suggestion. It's a command from God where those who are out of step with the will of God are without excuse. And he says, not only did we you know, set this example, but we gave you the authoritative teaching. And it's in the imperfect tense here. We commanded. We gave you this order. And it shows he did it over and over again. This was a constant theme. He kept telling them. Like, we used to command this to you. It's a constant theme of our teaching. It wasn't some isolated saying. We were rightly harping on this. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. That's the imperative in this passage. He's saying, command, command. The imperative here is he is not to eat. It's a first-class condition. It assumes it's true. That the person's not willing to work. It's not, not, it's not that they're not able to work or that they couldn't find a job, which, by the way, would be a really tough thing not to be able to find a job right now when everyone's begging to hire people. I'm just saying. This is not about people uh, who can't work for some reason or couldn't find a job for some reason, but someone who has no desire and they had so much time on their hands, they just became busybodies. He's saying, hey, lazy bones, uh, you don't have a desire to work. You're arrogant, you're willful, you're, 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 you're refusing what God wants you to do. If, if they're not willing, it's the idea that you, know, you have a desire, that you, you exercise your will, and there's an underlying motive, a sense of desire and and you want to do this. It's the idea of you applying yourself to something. By the way, you might be retired and go, whoa, whoa, am I in trouble? <laughs> no, you might have worked a long time in your life and now you're living off of what you saved up. But most retired people I know are the busiest people I know. Like people retire, I'm like, are you really retired? Are you sure you're retired? 
Because you're really busy with good things. The idea is uh, uh, apply yourself to something. This, this person is not a, wanting to apply themselves to anything. So it's not this desire, only the desire, but there's this determined, constant exercise of their will such that you keep getting up every day and doing what you're called to do, whether you're a mom or a dad or a brother, sister, student, uh, what, uh, you name it, whatever you're called to do in life. In, in a sense, you've got a variation on the, the sowing and reaping idea. If, if there's no working, there's no eating. Again, not advocating starvation, but don't mooch off of those that are doing all the work. It's the idea. The idea here would be help the needy, but don't help the lazy. Help the needy, but don't foolishly help the lazy. Not to eat. It's command. Present imperative. The one who will not work. Again, doesn't mean you're unemployed due to harsh economic situation. Or just, it's the idea you refuse to do anything meaningful. That's the idea. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know, back in Genesis, right after the fall, Genesis 3.19. It says this, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Proverbs 10, 4 says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The idea here is if their stomach growls enough, they might be motivated to work. Proverbs 16, 26, a worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. They're, they're, this has been insisted on over and over again, Paul's saying, and what it seems to be is the problem went unaddressed and got worse like this abscess wreaking havoc on the body, and he's telling them, he's, he's saying, okay, you've got to tell the irresponsible to get to work, do something meaningful, and if they refuse, they'll be subject to discipline. And it's a fair rule. He says, brothers, these are fellow believers you're dealing with, people made in the image of God in your local assembly. You need to do so with gentleness. And, and by the way, he doesn't make any exceptions. No one's off the hook. This is applied, the same rule is applied to all. You think about problems in a church, they're like physical problems in a sense. If they're left unsolved or unresolved, they grow. They don't just kind of go away. They get worse. They infect more. And the local church is a body. What germs are to the physical body, sin is to the spiritual body. Now, some people would read this and hear this and say, well, that's legalistic. If you're saying that, you do not know what legalism is then. Some would say, oh, that's legalistic. Not so fast. Obeying God is not legalistic. Obeying God from a, a heart that loves the Lord is not legalistic. Obeying God is different than legalism. Legalism is where you follow rules to think you can earn salvation or earn special favor from God. Obeying Christ comes from a heart of love, not out of obligation or follow some set of rules. The difference between obedience and, and legalism is the motive and the heart behind the actions, and you can't see everyone's. Legalism does not produce the righteousness of God or godliness. It produces pride. If you're legalistic, you get proud of what you're doing. Biblical obedience produces godliness, comes from a heart of love. So who is this referring to? 
How do we apply this? You know, what if you can't work? What if you can't get a job? What, what, if, what about panhandlers? What about beggars? Even. Luke 6.35 says, love your enemies. Jesus said this, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I would say that in a passage like this, you can't answer every question uh, and explain every situation, but there, this is a general rule for the church that you would resolve in your own heart to engage in meaningful labor in the church and outside of it, and don't hinder your fellowship in Christ by being slackful or slothful. Proverbs 18.9 says, He who is slack or slothful in his work is brother to him who destroys. It's satanic. So what this is saying is you've got to call the wayward to repentance and it doesn't do any good to let it go or let it fester. It's going to break out at some point. How can this help you in your life today or in your heart, your, your household, and even the household of God in the church? How, how can this help? Especially when you know, we're living in a, in a day of entitlement, if you think about it, where Many times those who will not work hard are, are said to be entitled to get paid off the backs of those who did work hard. And it results in a welfare culture. It results in a, a bitterness and it results in family disintegration and immorality and crime and hopelessness and meaninglessness and bitterness. And This idea is about those who will not work and those who cannot work. It's different. So it's about those who will not work. What you need to resolve is that you will do meaningful labor, paid or unpaid. And how can this help you? I would say this. Let me give you some observations, okay? Five to be exact. First, adhere to the word of God. Adhere to the word of God. It's living, it's active, it's, it's not bound, it's profitable. It, this, this here is binding. We're not to ignore it. And the idea is a separation was required so that obedient Christians would not be soiled by contact with habitually disobedient believers. And, and it, what it does is it reflects the break that the, that the disobedient created. It doesn't pretend that everything's okay. And we need to choose between sometimes our obedience to Christ and our comfort. And I think all of us do a lot to keep ourselves comfortable. But what about the obedience to Christ? And, and don't think it's just our generation. It happened since the beginning of time when people have always tried to go comfort over obedience. When After the flood, when God told Noah in, in Genesis 10, uh, populate the earth, Genesis 11, people settled down and built a big tower, a step in the wrong direction uh, from filling the whole earth. And the consequence was mass confusion of language and I would say that if the, if the word says to do something, if God says in his word to do something, obey it, adhere to the word. Secondly, adore Jesus. You make this the first one, if you really, but adore Jesus. Adore him. He doesn't change with the times. He's not moving the boundaries. He's always faithful. He's always good. He is not going to, you know, say, okay, I've changed the rules. No, his word stands forever. So what does Paul do? He says, I'm comforting you in Christ with gospel truth. Now, obey. I'm going to commend you for your obedience, and I'm going to keep calling you to obey. This is how you enjoy Christ. This is how you adore Christ, by obeying Christ, uh, because he's pleased when his children love him so much that they want to do what he wants 
even when it's uncomfortable. Am I making sense? And Christ's comfort, think about it, inspires your obedience such that you seek his pleasure, not your comfort. When you seek only to be comforted, you get more miserable. But when you seek Christ, you are comforted such that you want to obey from a pure heart, a heart of love. If you're not a Christian today and you can't adore Jesus, you've got to to see the gospel as the answer to your striving in life, that Jesus died on the cross in your place, shed his blood, paying for your sins that separate you from God and put you under the wrath of God. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus, believe in his finished work, believe in his sacrifice on the cross, his death and resurrection, you will have new life in Christ. You will have eternal life in Christ. You will have an actual purpose to live and get up in the morning. Adore Christ. Third, I'd say align yourself with work as an act of worship. A Christian wants to please Christ, so a Christian lives differently and and works with passion, works with excellence, uh, because a Christian is guided by a, a different set of convictions, a different standard for why we work and how we work. Whether or not you get a paycheck, just what you do, that God has assigned work for you, Make, make his honor the reason you work, the reason you work hard at every task, at every calling. May, may Jesus find you busy serving him when he returns. Don't be idle. Idle is, is the way to get more temptation. Brandon Crow recently wrote this, pursuing work diligently is one helpful strategy for dealing with temptations. Having too much leisure time or not having positive work to engage in can more easily lead us into temptation. As those created in God's image, we're made to work and to create, and we are too easily bored and too eagerly idle. This is in large part because we focus too much on ourselves, and in this struggle, as in all other aspects of life, we must not lose sight of our Savior. Might you do work that is good from a heart that is not? Yes, that can happen. It's easy to say, I'm good. You think you're better. I would say not so fast. Just humbly trust the Lord and align yourself to work as an act of worship. Instead of saying, oh, I gotta go to work tomorrow. Say, praise God, God made me to do what I'm doing. Number four, accept responsibility for your choices and blame no one. If you're working for God's glory, you want your actions to reflect his goodness. How you work reflects the one you worship. And the worth of Christ is seen in the world as the gospel is woven into your life. Every day matters, every waking hour matters, every square inch of where God sends you matters, and every good thing matters. And so accept responsibility for your choices and blame no one. And yes, it would be daunting if God were this harsh taskmaster, but he is the most beautiful, wonderful king. We are under his rule. So accept responsibility for your choices and blame no one. And lastly, number five, address issues and don't let them fester. Address issues and don't let them fester. Take care of things. Maybe not right this moment, but pray, fast, think, discuss. Don't gossip, but deliberate. Seek counsel. Obey the word of God. And don't be idle about dealing with idleness. It's it's tempting for all of us to let things slide. 
But the health of Christ's body is more important than our comfort level. Souls are in jeopardy, and make sure your, your will is, is surrendered to God's will. The practical application of this, especially verse 6, and then you get on into verse 14, is no social interactions. It's equivalent of a rebuke. Why? to foster repentance. Bad behavior unchecked leads to normalizing bad behavior. Breaking fellowship with professing believers is a solemn act of the church and should not be done lightly without the leadership of the church's elders. I wouldn't say that you should go independent and start shunning people. When it's done right, the Holy Spirit can use it to turn people back to Christ and even awaken unbelievers to their need of salvation. This passage tells us a command that is clear and shows us an example that is godly and a rule that is fair. And It's the obedient church that keeps the word of God even when it's painful. You know, infections seldom go undetected. Rarely do rotting things remain hidden. They, they make their presence known and felt. I think about my tooth. I know I'm talking about my tooth a lot. But, you know, we went through a lot together. Over 11 years, root canal, crown saved it. And for the time being, it was fine until recently. It's interesting, when I went to the dentist, he says to me, I can't take care of this. I have to send you to a specialist. I said, I thought you were the specialist. And I went to that specialist who actually was the one who did the root canal 11 years ago. And he's like, I remember this. I'm going to read you my notes from that root canal. This was one of the hardest ones I've ever done. He goes, we're not, we can't save this tooth. I have to send you to another specialist. Let me just say that they cared so much about me that they let me go in pain for a couple days before they, they didn't just get me in there and yank the tooth out. It was done carefully. It was done, dare I say, lovingly. Take great care of Christ's church. Lord, we thank you and praise you that it is your church. And I pray that you would help us to help and be a help and be not a hindrance, but to obey your clear commands and may we have godly examples that lead many to adore you. Thank you, Lord, that your work is perfect. Our work is not always up to par. And Thank you that you redeem us by your blood. Thank you that our hope is in Christ. Lord Jesus, our hope is in you. Your, your shed blood frees us from the curse. Sometimes our, our futile works sentence us and we, I praise you that your finished work saves us. Thank you, Lord, for your good grace. Thank you for your sweet love. We pray in your name. Amen. You can stand with us as we close and sing.
What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. All the glory 
to Him when the race is complete. Still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Praise God that our hope is in Jesus and there is hope for repentance and restoration in Christ. See you at the beach, baptism and barbecue uh, at Corona Del Mar, 4 p.m. And let's close with Revelation 22, 12 and 13. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for this gift of your grace to gather with your people May you come quickly, Lord Jesus, and when you come, may you find us busy serving you with all our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, your name, Lord. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.